and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where Angie and I join our forces each week and we present each other brand new stories of history that we have uh, uh, yet to discover. And um, we try to see if the other one's never heard of it before. (laughs) That's the fun part. I mean, if this is your first time here, welcome. This isn't. Yay! I love that. Hi, Hi, new friends. We have three listeners in Nepal. Re- really? In Nepal? Like, in Nepal. Like, we've seen Nepal pop up before, but to actually, like, kind of see and go, oh, my gosh, they're back. They came back in April. You came back. We have friends. Like, we have friends beside us. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I look, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, put a name on it and then end this thing prematurely. Maybe, you know, <laughs> it's not time for the define the relationship. So maybe we should just hold off on naming that. Okay, I'm sorry. Potential friends. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you been up to? Um, you know when you just feel like your world is just, everything is chaotic? No, never. Never. Oh, it's a strange sensation, but uh, just the good old chaos of, of life, you know, we've got everybody doing the thing and everybody working and um it's all very exciting and i'm really looking forward to a nap i'll have to schedule it for six months out but that's fine okay how about yourself i mean i'm in this wonderful like hey we're getting ready to fix that knee uh i mean it's been broken for what two decades what's what's another chunk of time before we get that surgery scheduled I like it. Yeah. I mean it, but it's it's one of those things where, yeah, just kind of I'm in the hurry up and wait stage. Not the euphoric, it's already healed up stage. Yeah, no. I got you. So it's you know, I live, I have it Hubs bought me a knee brace that has an ice pack pocket. Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen these before. Yeah. And um we just rotate ice packs out in and out all day long. You know, we wait till it becomes room temp and then we swap it out for a cold one. This isn't, this isn't what I thought late thirties approaching forties would, would be like, you know, I thought, you know, Hey, get me a cold one would, would be something very different. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I'm I'm getting ready for my AARP card as far as I'm concerned, because <laughs> I use my pill containers to tell me what day of the week it is. And get me a cold one has stopped referring to alcohol. And I <laughs> I hate it here. Um, I will tell you that on I think it was my 35th birthday. I, like we just I think we went out to dinner, like very low key, had a had a lovely evening. And the next day I came down with like one of my first really big bouts of vertigo. Okay. And um, totally like I would like to say that I was up all night doing the um, mid thirties, have a good time thing, pour me a cold one, if you will. We did not. But anyway, the following day at work, um, it hit me and I was leaving the facilities if you will and thankfully one of my sales guys was with me when I almost hit the floor he caught me oh, sh- called my husband and my husband came and got me and then later said after the after I was able to like formally look at him again like without falling over or wanting to puke because that's how it works in my brain he jokingly said I really didn't think 35 was good was when I was gonna have to start putting you to bed and changing your clothes for you Oh. <laughs> and um i i fully now understand what in sickness and in health means yeah got, i, I got mean a real yeah. hubs hubs had to deal with in sickness and in health in sickness and in injury um mm-hmm. you know like i because i just started walking again i i just got mobility back you know because lyme disease sidelined me and i would just run out of steps and i would just stop stop walking middle middle of the thing and wherever i was and she'd be like well that's it i'm i'm done <laughs> gonna sit like, here now thanks bye 
my legs have stopped communicating with my brain. So here is, here's where I'm at until I'm not. Yeah. And so then to be like, Hey, by the way, we're going to start taking you off antibiotics and massive knee injury goes, remember me. I'm back <laughs> for my second act. <laughs> we met in your twenties. It was very I wasn't exciting even, time for me then. I wasn't even 20. I was, I was right before moving into college. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. You know? And so it's like having a knee injury that can drink because my <laughs> knee injury is 21 this year. And it's like, I talked to, to, to the surgeon and he'll look at my MRI and he'll be like, how old is this, this injury? Cause he's looking at the MRI and he can see like, you know, the, the layers of abuse that have transpired, you know, and I'm sure right. once he gets in there, he's going to see the scar tissue and go, dear God, there's cave paintings on this scar tissue. <laughs> I was going to say it's old enough to vote. <laughs> I mean, it's been voting. And apparently like, cause I had said, doc, why can you answer, riddle me this? Like my knee has, it doesn't hurt so much as I get nauseous. And he goes, Hmm. Okay. Uh, I would say it's not unusual, but I would say it's likely psychosomatic. You know, you're, you've stopped listening to knee pain and your knee has decided to tell your brain a different signal so that you'll listen to it. Okay. I'm like, okay. well, fantastic. Uh, it, it chose the loud one and I, you know. We couldn't have gone with like something, I don't know, a little bit more polite. <laughs> In in my knee's defense, it likely has been, you know, blaring a klaxon for the last two decades. And here I am doing my thing going, yeah, no, <laughs> it's fine. I'll just put a brace on. I'm going to keep going. You're going to keep on doing it because yeah, go, that's what we do. I'm going to go hiking and then I'm going to go to work and then I will put ice on it. Maybe if I remember tomorrow, if it, if I think about it, mm-hmm. I feel right. this. I'm going to edit this out, but do you want to hear the best story of my knee going out? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> and you'll know exactly why I'm editing this out here shortly. Um, <laughs> so I, when I first moved to Portland, lived in a house with two other girls. And, okay. you know, like the the house next door was also owned by the same people. And that was a house of three girls. So, so And we had keys to each other's home. So it was really like six girls living together. Right, right, right. We would just come okay. and go out of each other's homes. Well, I was home alone and I decided I was going to do some yard work in the backyard. And I figured it's a beautiful sunny day. I'm going to do, I'm going to weed the garden topless. As you do. So I'm weeding the garden when my knee goes out. And so I'm covered in dirt and grime and not much else. <laughs> I need you to know the image I have of you is magnificent. <laughs> oh, it, it gets even better. Um, because I'm like, okay, I can drag my carcass into the living room and I can I can use that as like a, a place to like stage myself to like go get the things I need because that's like the halfway point. So I drag myself into the into the living room, pull myself onto the couch, and I'm like, oh, this hurts. I'm just I'm just in agony. And that's when I hear one roommate's family's minivan pull into the oh and I can't run I can't walk and I'm <laughs> sitting there covered in dirt not much else <laughs> and I grab one of the throw pillows one of the large throw pillows and I put it over my body and I'm just seated on the couch <laughs> And that's how <laughs> Teresa spent the next three days. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great because like had a conversation with like her dad. <laughs> and, you know, just chatting like everything's normal. Grandma and showed up, brought a casserole. I wasn't quite that bad, but it was like mom and dad walked in. And as soon as like both were in separate places, at that point, I had enough gumption to pull myself up and 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 seek refuge. Yeah, <laughs> and refuge I did. And I don't think I've ever even told her now that her dad and I have had a conversation in person when I was topless. Um, I love that. Do you want to do you want to tell me your story? Because I'm curious on what you got. 
I mean, I can. My story's not particularly long, but it's one of my favorites. I mean, mine got long. I may only tell half of it. Okay. I'll go if you want me to go. I had to just check my source. Okay. Okay. So do you remember um, that Mulder meme I sent you the other day? Yeah, it was the uh, one where I immediately sent you the David Duchovny, why don't you love me? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, So let's get some paranormal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) So my my sources are an article from goalnola.com, ghostcitytours.com, fleasderoy.org, nola.com, the Canadian Encyclopedia. Wait a minute. So we're doing a lot of like New Orleans and now you've got the Canadian Encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just want to, I want you to know I'm yeah. paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you are. Yeah. Then we got the Canadian Encyclopedia and a quick listen to an episode of the Haunted History Chronicles podcast because I love this story so much. And there's so many different like venues you can take with it, like different avenues. So I wanted to hear somebody else's take on it. Okay. Um, I'm going to tell you the story of the casket girls of New Orleans. I don't know anything about this. Oh, okay. I'm so excited. Then let's get paranormal. (laughs) So my story starts roughly 300 years ago. In the American South, which at the time was obviously still colonies of European powers, um, parts of Mississippi, Alabama, and L.A. were, or L.A. as in Louisiana. L.A. was in my notes. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I was like, uh, Louisiana. My geography is not that bad, typically. You know, parts of Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana are controlled by the French, and and in these areas, they have sent. um, So my these particular group of Frenchmen were not the bougie Frenchmen that we kind of picture. You know, Um, yeah, incredibly well dressed, croissant eating gentlemen of the of of the bougie class uh these were like hard almost feral hunter trappers explorers and traders and mostly male that were working in this area of the world and they were also rarely ever home so the local catholic priests or what i'm kind of imagining is probably more like missionaries than actually like situated parish priests because this is 300 years ago and we're just now building up these types of establishments in this area. Mm. Anyways, these fellas start to get a little concerned, either because these men are totally unruly or because they're choosing companionship with local natives. Take your pick. We're unsure of what their real reason behind this was. But they need they feel the need to solve this problem with the importation of proper women. I'm down for this. Right good honest probably catholic virgin women with whom they could start a family and settle into the familial ways so they ask the bishops and the mayors um of french port cities for their unmarried women and the bishops and the mayors immediately seeing the benefits of this empty their jails and brothels and send the women packing to the new world this i i heard about this actually yeah, okay, so you can imagine that these women are probably not the most homemakery and probably not the the best um, solution for what the priests are considering um, a bit of a degenerate population. You know, they're good with the wifely duties if the wifely duties are restricted to one scenario. There you go. And so... The local priests are like, well, we need to find something, you know, a little bit of a different option. The local lawmakers, all of these guys are looking around, thinking of things they can do when they decide to petition the king of France, Louis XV. Um, I assume he is now remembering the work of his great-grandfather, Louis XIV, the sun king, the visionary of Versailles, who solved a similar problem further north in Canada between 1663 and 1673. He, for lack of a better word, imported roughly 800 young, often orphaned, or excuse me, orphaned or destitute, virtuous women. They were referred to as Le Fille de Roy, 
Their expenses, ranging from travel to room and board, was completely covered by the king, as well as giving them a small trousseau, like their, you know, travel wardrobe. Okay. And a dowry. Here you go. (laughs) Most of their dowries were about 50 livre, which today would be around $5,000. Fun fact. In a hard year, the dowry would would be replaced by... provisions from the king's storehouses so if we're having a hard financial year you get grain and corn instead here's a cheese wheel and a bottle of wine (laughs) go about your way (laughs) yeah um so that was that was louis the 14th's idea so he transfers these young ladies um in which in his mind are of good virtue they're they're not out they weren't picked from jails. They weren't picked from brothels. They were picked from orphanages, orphanages and nunneries and places where you would find perhaps an orphaned or destitute young lady that's not trying to be a prostitute. And he transferred them over to Canada to settle that area and mm-hmm. create families and colonies of good God-fearing Christians. So fast forward to the 1700s. Our folks in the South are looking at this thinking, oh, well, that that works. Let's let's do that. Let's let's do the thing like my grandfather did it. It goes great. I'm going to send you over some young ladies. So the first group of young ladies arrives in Mobile, Alabama in 1704. This is this is post the sex workers. Yes. Okay. Then in 1719, some more are transferred to Biloxi. And then in 1728 to New Orleans, where our story begins. So here's where it gets really fun for me because of where of where the story goes from here. So these young ladies, we don't know the number of young ladies that were on this ship, but essentially they are now known today as the Casket Girls or the Casquite. Do we, they... do we know why they're called the Casket Girls? I feel yep. like this is important. <laughs> it is important. So they were given a small traveling trunk to carry their wardrobe, which consisted of two dresses, two petticoats, six headdresses, and under things. Okay. Legend has it that the trunks were shaped like small caskets. Oh, no. One source that, for the life of me, I have known this story for years and years and years, so I cannot tell you what the source for this is, but, like, one legend is that... They were shaped like caskets in case the girls didn't survive the journey. No. They would have a way to, I don't know, make it into their Reduce, reuse, recycle? I guess, yeah. Um, but in actuality, they probably were not shaped like caskets as we know them today at all. They were just small trunks. But this is New Orleans we're talking about, and we can't not use our imagination. <laughs> that, okay, so, fair. That checks. Right? So... These girls disembark from their ship and they are pale, they're gaunt, probably a little bit sickly. They've been on the open ocean for like six months. Um, They did stop port in the Caribbean at least once. And then they're given to the Ursuline nuns who have just arrived themselves only the year before. And the job of the Ursuline nuns is to care for them and educate them until a proper marriage match shows up so out of one nunnery into another essentially yeah but they know they're going to be married like it's not a secret to them their goal is to make a good match and become polite respectable members of society and turn it this backwood fur trading kind of wild area into you know the glorious city of new orleans To to take them from the Hudson's Bay Company to the Saks Fifth Avenue owning conglomerates that... (laughs) Yes, exactly that. All right. Yes. And to, I don't know, maybe civilize the men that have been been over there for so long. Um, So Isn't that the thing? We all get into marriages thinking that we're going to change the men. The men will will change. They'll be different after we're married. That's what they thought. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, Naivete some of these girls probably did um get into an advantageous marriage but for the most part it sounds like that the bulk of them were either not married off or their men that they were married to were less than kind 
Um, at one point, the king actually demanded the return of the girls, whichever ones were remaining or whichever ones they could get their hands on. We don't know if they actually got returned back to France. But now when I say girls, I'm saying like they're teenagers no, they're, and young they're women. Ladies. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm translating. But, I'm just yeah. I'm imagining a world where the king has take backsies. Yeah. And so the interesting thing to me about that is we don't we don't know if that actually happened. We just know that he demanded their return. So my assumption is at least some returned. But like, why? What what happened that he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to fill my nunneries back up with my girls. Well, I'm going to assume. So this is only one ship. So it's not all of them. It's just this this particular import of ladies to New Orleans who the bulk of them, like I said, were not treated well, were not given to advantageous marriages, were given to drunkards and men that just wouldn't provide a good home. You know, so, okay, so the more I'm going to interrupt again, the more stories we do about this, the more I find myself loving the French kings. <laughs> Same. Because it's like <laughs> we have Prince Louis Philippe, who is just like, bet I'm going to I'm going to go to war over one burned down pastry shop. Yep. <laughs> and then <laughs> this guy who's just like, I had a couple people write me letters. And I'm just going to assume this was an entire bad batch that just was not treated right. You guys left this group of milk in the sun too long. So I'm going to recall it all. Yeah, um, that could have very easily been exactly what happened. I think it's interesting to note that we don't actually know if they were returned or how he even came to find out that they were not being treated well. Here's where the story gets fun. So... We know that at this point, New Orleans is a city that is um, filled with a menagerie of different people groups, different belief systems, and different ideas, right? Like, yeah, that's kind of the foundation of New Orleans history to begin with. The very first thing that's noted about these girls because of their pale complexion and their gauntness and their sickliness is that there's got to be at least one vampire on board yes (laughs) yes so the and and here's where the avenues go you can kind of take your story how you wish um i like the belief that they were not the ones that introduced vampires to new orleans but rather what was in their caskets was instead There's one storyline that suggests it was not the girls themselves, but maybe some of them were duped by some rather roguish gentlemen in Europe to take their the place of their clothing in the casket and travel to the new world via the darkness of the casket. So they're assuming (laughs) some person says, hey, you know how you have just enough room for two dresses? How about... (laughs) Oh me. I hide there instead. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I'm gonna call a big old load of hogwash because first off, if your dress or if your casket is only big enough for two dresses, a grown ass man ain't going in there. Well, right, but this is New Orleans and this is how stories form their their mythos, if you will, you know? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. so they're um their their caskets, their trunks, if you will, are now much bigger in our imaginations than they started. And they can hold a full person, whether it's a young lady or a six foot two dashing vampire from France. <laughs> Either way, they fit. Um, there is a they do know for their one thing they know for sure is that when the trunks came into New Orleans, they were stored in the attic of the Ursuline convent. Not in the rooms where the girls are. Like, okay, hold, yeah, I may be I overthinking this. They probably, logically, they probably took their clothes out of the trunks and then put the empty shells up there. I would guess. Okay, but what's really interesting about that is the the Ursuline Convent's attic has shutters on it. One source says there are 800 nails keeping the shutters closed with the belief that they were blessed by the Pope. Okay. Possibly brought over when the nuns themselves came from Europe, possibly blessed after the fact. Could you imagine being the Pope and being like, 
okay, wait, hold on. I've got a lot of things to do today. I'm <laughs> going to preemptively bless all of this water. <laughs> Your 800 nails on the off chance that there is a vampiric outbreak somewhere in the new world. And then I've got to go do all of these relics over here. I've got to continue to pray over them. And then I have to, you know, continue running the church. It, yeah. So um, when I think about that part of the story, because it genuinely makes me wonder how much the Vatican has in its archives. Um, how did that conversation go with the Pope's assistant that day? Like, um, sir, I've got you blessing the uh, the skull of John the Baptist, as well as these 800 nails that may or may not be used to ward off a vampire infection in New Orleans. We're unsure, sir. After the gym, before the doctor's appointment, and after <laughs> we've kissed babies and glad-handed a couple of officials, I, I need you to hold your hands over these buckets of iron and mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, a little... Oh, good. Little bless me, Father, for I have. Oh nope, that's the wrong one. Um, <laughs> obviously, I'm not yeah. Catholic, but you know, yeah. So, so, so that is the that's that's a belief that the nails or um, and they're not like they're like rods, you know, like uh, like building spike nails. Okay, so they're you're not small. They're not carpet tacks. They're they're no. the ones that look like they hung the Lord and Savior on the cross. Yeah. The yeah. railroad, the, the thinner railroad spike, the thinner railroad spikes. Yeah, that's my understanding of them. Um, and but, but what's really interesting is so. So, as I said before, the the trunks were kept up in the in the attic when or on the third story, whatever you want to call it, when the nuns went back after some time to either retrieve something from the trunks to retrieve the trunks. I'm unclear as to how they ended up there in the first place. Everything was empty. There is no personal items left, no, nothing in any of the trunks. Okay, but see, now we're back. Okay, you get to a <laughs> fresh country and you're like, you know what I'm going to do now that I'm here? I'm going to take all these things that I've been waiting for, for the new world, all two dresses and all of mm -hmm. my underwear. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just put it up in the trunk, all of it up there. And call the it one So my assumption is because they're being cared for, at, at a convent is perhaps that there is a specific dress code they must abide by and these dresses and headdresses and underwear that they have is for when they actually marry is kind of the way i understand it so you're imagining that all of their undergarments are straight lingerie and it there's not a no. practical pair no no no, no. i just mean <laughs> i mean to say like um like the things in that trunk are meant to be used when they've started their life outside of the convent. Okay. All right. So basically they come in, it's less of a convent, like I'm imagining and more of a step Boarding up school. nun four, seven, two, nine. We're going to do the full cavity search. Yeah. We're going to call it that. And then when the, when the girl received a marriage match, she would get her trunk and, and take it to, change out home. of your bright orange habit and now you get to put on street clothes that's how i imagine it because to me that's what makes the most sense when you think about the fact that like why else would you store all the trunks in another room like in another place away from where the girls are sleeping it just it's weird because if i mean i would okay I, i'm getting hung up on details carry on yeah but anyway so so, like I said, when the nuns get up there to retrieve the trunks, they're they're empty. There's nothing there, and the windows are still sealed shut. So, immediately, the local community assumes either the girls are in fact vampires, all of them, or they yeah, or okay. they brought they brought vampires with them. Because at this point, a lot of interesting things start happening in, in, in New Orleans at the time. Um, one source says that some of these girls actually had some type of, um, maybe it was a, like a virus or a cough that came from the travel, but they would actually spit up blood. I don't so, think it was tuberculosis, but something that would cause some kind of... I mean, but that, that honestly could be pneumonia, because that's... Right? Like, there's a lot of things that it could be, and some of these girls are stated to have having had that, on top of coming back pale and not healthy looking. Um, 
I don't know. I love the idea that we we as a whole in society believe that if you believe in vampires or if you believe in the paranormal in this way that they came to the U.S. via New Orleans via a boat uh, designed by the king to carry young ladies to proper marriage matches in the new world. Um, we're just gonna hop on board and maybe suck everyone dry and um start a start afresh in the new world. Okay, conspiracy theory. Yeah. Right. He um, knows that he's got a, a vampiric lord among the, you know, <laughs> and he's okay. like, okay, uh, how about I empty the nunneries and you sneak on board there and then you're out of my hair and we unleash you on the Yanks. I mean, hey, here's the thing. That's the best part about legends, right? Like we don't know what parts are truth and what are not other than we have dates <laughs> And we know that they did show up, and that's why they showed up. What's really interesting to note about all of this, though, and I and and where it obviously becomes a legend, is that the Ursuline Coven convent that the nuns were supposed to have lived in with these young ladies was actually not built until 1734. And then again, rebuilt in 1751 because the technique that was used to build it wasn't real great with the Louisiana humidity. Mm. So it kind of just eroded away. Um, so they had to rebuild it. But all that to say, um, there's some years between 1727 and 1734. <laughs> so it's interesting to me that I, I could see it if it was like, okay, the nuns arrived and then they and then they were building their convent and then the girls arrived all like within a couple month time span for their trunks to be up in the attic. There's at least five years at right. the minimum, right? So like really where were they stored until then? Where were they living until then? I mean, we've already established a couple plot holes. Right. <laughs> Right, but the great imagination of New Orleans is like, no, 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 it's 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 fine, it's vampires, <laughs> like, we're good. That, that's their default, right? Right, like, we accept it, but the idea that this is where that story came from, this is where, like, the great vampire stories of America come from, is these unfortunate girls that ended up on the ship to the New World in hopes of a better life because they didn't have anything back in France. Is how we got vampires in, into the U.S. I, I think it's just such a fun story. I love it. Follow up. In 1978, supposedly there was an investigation that wanted to prove this theory true or false. That there were vampires up in the attic of the country. Okay, now, now hold on. As soon as we get there, I'm just imagining vampire researcher being the title of some <laughs> basement dweller human who obviously has multiple side hustles yeah so supposedly i haven't found i would like to find footage of this uh, world out there if you have have this footage it would be awesome to see i'll have to google it because i didn't because i love the idea of actually not knowing but supposedly there's footage that in 19 in 1978, these two vampire hunters, or whatever you want to call them, decided they're going to go prove this. So they set up cameras outside the windows across the street. This group has already been informed that they are trespassing and loitering because they tried to set up shop within the convent grounds. Oh, jeez. So... I don't know, maybe they wait a couple of days and then they, they just decide we're going to set up shop across the street. So they shut up shop across the street. The next morning, their bodies are found, ripped to shreds, and drained of blood. Supposedly, the wait a minute. footage... Legitimately done? That's how the story goes. No, no, wait. Do we have police reports on this? I don't know. I, I have chosen for myself to not look further into it because I love the unknown of it. I dislike you for right now for that. I'm sorry. You could Google it if you want. I'll see what I can find. I am for you, sorry. I love I'm not idea. real sorry because <laughs> there are vampires. Here's the thing, though. Like, do you want to take the vampire off? Like, do I want to take the vampire off? No. Yes. <laughs> but do I want to see the actual police report? Yes. 
I feel like if you're going to ask for a New Orleans police report that involves vampires anytime after, I don't know, 1965, you're going to get a lot. I mean, do I imagine the thing still smells like booze? Of course. Is there going to be some powdered <laughs> sugar from beignets in the corner? I'm oh, okay God, with that. I hope that. so. <laughs> Supposedly, in the footage, you see the shutters that are supposed to be nailed shut by the nails, blessed by the Pope. Which, oh, P.S., there's another time the Pope actually came to New Orleans and it said he blessed the shutters again. Supposedly, in the footage, you see them waving in the wind like they're open. Could you imagine? Which I just, only helps perpetuate this story. The Pope's itinerary again. We're back there where he's like <laughs> the, the the shutters in the again? attic. Just, really? This all, okay. <laughs> you guys have some weird. Like I thought we were just gonna hang out and chat and talk about like I don't know Jesus, like Pope things. I don't. I don't. I just. I want to know so much about the Pope and his job. I love every detail of the story. It all makes me happy. I never get tired of reading about it. I never get tired of learning about it. I never get tired of the different stories that have come out of it. I just like, don't want to look at the actual facts around it. I'm, I don't want to watch the 1978 investigation video. Like I just, I just don't. I'm, I'm happy believing that there is something I don't understand. I am frustrated. I'm so sorry, but I'm super not. <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. Listen, Demi Lovato, I'm 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 up to here <laughs> with this. Like I am you you have now just shotgunned the rest of my day as I'm trying to figure out where I can get access to this. You know, it might be online. Like I said, I didn't look. I've heard I've heard that story multiple times that there were investigators that were ripped to shreds and drained of their blood and found the next morning. Heard that story multiple times and I never I don't want to say I never questioned it. I never wanted to know what I, actually happened. I'm going to fill out a FOIA request after this just <laughs> to get my hands on that documentation. <laughs> and I want you to know in advance that I'm already up to here with the bureaucracy that you have foisted <laughs> upon me. <laughs> you're, you're welcome, I guess. You, you, you like were not management. Like <laughs> oh, I'm, you know, I kind of want to. Do you remember that time I told you I was super ticked off about that guy that changed the calendar? Numa. Yeah. Are you feeling that way right now? Yeah, I, I'm that perturbed <laughs> at you to where just <laughs> randomly someone's going to say vampires. I'm going to scream, Angie! <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to swear under my breath every time somebody mentions vampires or your name from here on out. You're welcome. So I delightedly told you the story of how vampires got into America and um, ruined the rest of your day at simultaneously at the same time. I should get a high five for that. I'll let somebody else give that to you, because if I do it, it'll be with a chair. <laughs> and it'll not be to my hand. It'll be to my face. <laughs> I mean, look, however you choose to catch my high five is up to you. <laughs> with these hands. Yeah. <laughs> Play a game of catch. You can look it up. I'm not stopping you. I just don't need to know myself. Well, congratulations for those who are still sticking into the history <laughs> podcast. Boy, I, I don't know why you stuck around. Hey, listen, there was some history there. Okay. I just wanted to bring some paranormal history to, this the, was to just the party. The history you would read off the bathroom walls. Absolutely. <laughs> Minus the good part that I got from the Canadian Encyclopedia. Okay, wait, let's go back to that. What is the part that you got from the Canadian Encyclopedia? <laughs> the Le Fideroy, the young ladies that were okay. um, imported to Canada for their... All right, because that was that was a huge outlier in your sources, so... There you go, yeah, that's... Well, I had to get a Canadian source on the Canadian women, you know? That Okay, that checks, that checks. Yeah, I needed to I needed to make sure I understood my dates and my and my times and if their if their situation was any different than the situation of the girls being, you know, later being transferred to the south, like was it the same story twice or how did it work? So there okay. is real history there. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> That's all right. I'm I'm done I'm done busting your balls. Carry on. You can, you can I know you're mad because I don't have a I don't have a video to show you. I don't care about the video. I just want the police report. Like, I don't want to watch any bad 
B-level horror film. Like, that's not sure? what I meant. I mean, I want to know that you did, but I don't want to. <laughs> I want you to do it for me. Yeah, like, that's that's what I'm in for, right? Like, I mean, I have watched a ton of B, B-rated vampire movies to know that um, when you hear about a, a investigation happening, where the investigators are drained of their blood the following morning, you don't look into it because then you're next. Just I'm me. moving on. I'm moving on because I'm <laughs> I am I am just getting more and more angsty. I'm so sorry. I don't want you to be angsty. <laughs> I don't think that that's a concern of yours. I'm I'm going to be honest. Angsty is never my goal. Okay. Slightly perturbed that I don't have a police report for you does make me smile just a little bit. That, okay. <laughs> Fair. Fair. <laughs> so the other day, I thought for sure and certain that you were on to me when you sent me a TikTok. You, what TikTok? Which one? You sent me a TikTok of the man in the Roman helmet who does history stories. Oh, I love him. Yeah. Roman helmet guy. <laughs> yes. Um. And he covered Sergeant Reckless the horse. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm going to tell you about Sergeant Stubby the dog. Oh, I love Sergeant. Is, is he a bulldog? A mixed breed, I think. I'd be, okay, uh, okay, you know, like okay. I thought kind of pit bull the way he looks, but I could, I could see bulldog. But okay. So my sources, Connecticut's official state website. <laughs> It hit me right out the gate with an official state website. Yep. The Lore <laughs> Podcast, they have an episode called Seriously Ill. Um, there is an article in the New York Times from December 31st, 1922. Okay. 19, 1922? 1922. Okay. Um, if I get to 1922, it is... Okay, so there's that. And then if I have the then I will hit you with another one, depending on how long this gets, with the ConnecticutHistory.org entitled Jack Brutus, Connecticut Dog Warrior, We Knew. <laughs> I love all of these names. Okay. So, uh, Story of Stubby actually starts at the beginning of the Great War in Europe. From 1914 to 1917, the French, Germans, and others are all fighting with each other for control of France and Europe. And then in April of 1917, America finally enters the war, you know, after we stopped for breakfast. And we basically <laughs> saunter into every event with like a, a Starbucks in hand. And our our sunglasses like half down. Like, uh... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that checks actually 100%. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's about this time that... Connecticut is combining a, several of its groups to actually send them over, right? So there's a, a, like this regiment didn't have enough people. So they combine the first regiment with the second regiment. Okay. And a bunch of military jargon and stuff that I don't really care about. But as all this is happening, there is a dog that wanders onto the military grounds okay. and he becomes the unofficial mascot of this group of humans i love that you refer to them as humans <laughs> i mean like because i could say a group of men i don't know i've decided to try to stick to humans as a way to describe people to avoid men women like humans group of humans okay okay because i'm sure that there were probably a couple of women serving that we don't think about the forgotten so i just say humans get, get okay. them all i like it i like it yeah and then when they they mess me up i'll call them monsters so do you? Yeah. Um, so Stubby wanders onto the encampment. And he befriends a bunch of these soldiers. And in October of 1917, the unit ships out for France. And it's at this time, somebody... Now, this is not a, a small lap dog. Somebody shoves him into their trench coat, walks aboard the USS Minnesota... So is this like I'm getting the image of the people in in New York that can only ride the subway if their dogs can fit in a bag? And so they put their husky in their hiking backpack and just yeah. walk. Yeah. Like yeah, it's yeah. that level of nonsense. So they smuggle this dog this 
medium breed dog. Okay. On board in a trench coat like you do. <laughs> and as they get into the water, you know, like they're far away from from land. That's when it's like, wait a minute. Did I just hear a bark? <laughs> All right. uh, no, Private Tyler over there has got a tummy ache. <laughs> yeah, it's got a barking cough. I mean, it's, it's weird. Just got you know, it. He just didn't get his, his whooping cough shots. He's not going to be around children. It's not a big deal. Just let it go. <laughs> okay. So as all this is happening, times are not good in France. The American expeditionary forces are looked on as second-class soldiers and are not trusted without French oversight. And trench warfare is combined with deadly gas that took its toll on both the men and their spirits. So it's it's a it's bad news bears. Cue this dog showing up. Stubby did his part for providing morale lifting visits up and down the line and an occasionally early warning about gas attacks or by waking a sleeping sentry to alert him to a German attack. So this is like the best time to have a dog. Yeah. So I know you hear this, you're like, oh my gosh, go puppies. Good boy. Give you all the treats. Mm hmm. So in 19, April of 1918, the Americans and the 102nd Infantry, those are the, the combination of forces from Connecticut, they finally get their chance to prove their mettle and they participate in a raid on a German-held town of Scheib. <laughs> you guys, I want you all to know her face is amazing right now. Shreepray. Shreepray. We're going with Shreepray. I like um, and, it. Yeah, it's close enough. And if it's not, I didn't take German. Perfect. As the Germans withdrew, they threw hand grenades at their pursuing allies. Stubby got a little overenthusiastic and found himself on top of a trench when a grenade went off <gasps> and was wounded in the foreleg. No! This occurred in the vicinity of Dead Man's Curve, which is this road outside of Shripay, and so named because to negotiate this curve, vehicles had to slow down, making them an easy target for German artillery. Oh, so this okay, is, okay. This is not the place to get injured. And it was after the recapture of the Chateau Terry, the women of the town made Stubby a chamois blanket embroidered with the flags of the Allies. Oh. I love that. Yes. The blanket... What are you doing this evening? I'm needle pointing for the dog next door. For the best little boy. The best dog. <laughs> Who's a good boy. That's exactly what I'm seeing. <laughs> mm-hmm. The blanket also held his wound stripe, three service chevrons, and numerous medals. That is a good boy. A good boy. Mm-hmm. The first of which was presented to him at yet another name I won't try to pronounce, which is the <laughs> home of Joan of Arc. Okay. All right. Actually, I think I might go for it. Neuf Chateau. Okay. The ninth okay. castle? I think new to NEU. How does it? NEUF. That's, that's ninth. Neuf. Nine. Again, anyway, I, I took on. Japanese. <laughs> I love it. In the Argonne, Stubby ferreted out a German spy in hiding by holding onto the seat of his pants. <laughs> so it's like that the uh, uh, sunscreen commercial. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly dad? like that. Yep, oh my like, gosh, just like cute. the copper tone little toddler yeah, in the copper yeah. tone. That's what it is. I'm yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah, it, you you stalled long enough for my brain to pull it up. So thank you. I was over here thinking of the salt company, and I'm like, that's not what it's Morton's? called. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so when Stubby apprehended the German soldier, they confiscated the German's Iron Cross, mm-hmm. and Stubby wore it on the butt portion of his blanket for many years. <laughs> The Iron Cross had unfortunately fallen victim to time and is no longer with Stubby, but many of his other decorations and souvenirs remain and are displayed with him today. Okay. So Stubby was also gassed several times. Eventually, Uh he ended up in the hospital when his master, Corporal 
J. Robert Conroy was wounded. It okay. was also during he after doing hospital duty for a while, he and Conroy returned to the 102nd and spent the remainder of the war with that unit. Stubby also was smuggled back home the same way he entered the war, although <laughs> by this time he was so well known that you would have had to suspect one or two general officers looked the other way as he went aboard the ship to sail home and muster out with the rest of the regiment. I absolutely would have looked the other way. There are reports that when Stubby was smuggled onto the boat, is either at, at, smuggled onto the boat or later on into the war, one of the officers was a little like, man, dog. The dog saluted him. And then he was like, well, yeah, okay. I mean, all right, it's good enough. I can't even, you know. <laughs> Can't tell him no now. He is a good boy. Oh, mm -hmm. no. <laughs> so even though this is now after the war, this isn't where his story ends. Okay. This is where he actually becomes a celebrity. I love him. I want to pet him. He was made a lifetime member of the American Legion and marched in every Legion parade and attended every Legion convention from the end of the war until his death. <laughs> he was written about in practically every newspaper in the country at one time or another. He met three presidents. He wow. met Wilson, Harding, and Coolidge. He was a lifetime member of the Red Cross and YMCA. Because <laughs> we got to, yeah, I gotta go swimming, you know, gotta work yeah. out. Yeah. The Y offered him three bones a day and a place to sleep for the rest of his life. And he regularly hit the campaign trail for recruiting members for the American Red Cross and for selling victory bonds. Clever. I know. That is the goodest boy. In 1921, General Blackjack Pershing. What a name. What uh a name. Oh my, I, excuse me. I have to make a note about this because I only read about General Blackjack Pershing. Yeah, P-E-R-S-H-I-N-G, who was the Supreme Commander of the American Forces during the war, pinned Stubby with a gold hero dogs medal that was commissioned by the Humane Society or Humane Education Society that was the forerunner to the current Humane Society. That's cool. He was so famous that the Grand Majest Grand Hotel Majestic in New York City lifted its ban on dogs so that Stubby could stay there when he was en route to one of his many visit vis visits to Washington. I love knowing that somewhere there is a concierge losing his absolute crap because a dog is now officially can stay in the hotel. <laughs> Could you imagine the campaigning? That's like, no, no. Okay, look, look. Okay, all right. Look, first, I think we really need to do this. I think this law is, or this rule is kind of stupid. But hey, uh, okay, the publicity, the publicity. That's what I'm gonna lead with. You need to do it for the publicity. But hey, we could let the dog in. Yeah. So those mm -hmm. are the things. Mm -hmm. So his owner, uh, J. Robert Conroy, he goes. Who to is at this point just his PR guy? Yeah, basically. Yes. <laughs> Just his manager. That's really yeah. all he's doing. But he goes to Georgetown to study law. Stubby became the mascot for the football team, joining the long list of Georgetown Hoyas. I would have never put the two together. I love that. During halftime, he would nudge a football around the field that would delight the crowd. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and the little trick with the football became a standard feature for the repertoire of Georgetown mascots, throughout the 20s and 30s and is thought by some to be the origin of the halftime show as it should be i think it's better than most halftime shows i would rather have puppies any day in 1925 he had his portrait painted by charles ayer whipple who was the artist to the capitol in washington dc and that portrait currently hangs in the regimental museum at new haven connecticut <laughs> yep in oh 1926, Stubby finally passed on. His obituary mm. in the New York Times was three columns wide by half a page long, considerably more than many notables of his day. Because he was the goodest boy. He was eulogized by many 
from Machine Gun Parker, his old regimental commander, to Clarence Edwards, the wartime commander of the 26th, the 26th Division. They all mourned his passing. His remains... Machine Gun Parker? Machine Gun Parker. My God, your story's got some great names in it. But see, Machine Gun Parker is all in quotes because I'm assuming, you know, that was just the name he picked up during the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. As the gunner. That makes sense. Yeah. But like, you know, Blackjack Pershing, there were we no quotation it, yeah. marks in sight. Okay. I love His it. remains were preserved and presented for display purposes to the Smithsonian. <laughs> you so... can see him all taxidermied up with his coat and all of his medals at the Smithsonian. So you can stop by Lawn Chair Larry's chair and then go on over and, and pet see the, the goodest boy. Oh, and I'm not done. What a yet. day. What a day. You ready? Because mm-hmm. I ain't done. Now, while he was super cool, he is not. Because this was before dogs were officially a part of military. Now we have like militarily trained dogs and all right, that right. kind of stuff. Did you ever hear about the dog that served in the Civil War? I don't think so. There is a dog named Jack Brutus or Old Jack. Oh, I love that. My cat's name is Jack. Okay. And this was like a little blip that I kind of went, ooh, ooh, and I wanted to learn more, but I couldn't. Or, and there's, I'm sure there's more, but I, I d- didn't have time to find it. So let me read to you about old Jack. And okay. this, this will be the last, you know, the only other animal I have in mind. <laughs> He's born in Cumberland, Maine in 1891. He led an exciting life even before his stint in the military as part of Company K, the first Connecticut, Connecticut volunteer infantry. So Connecticut just has dogs. That's what I'm hearing. Dude, Connecticut is where you go, apparently. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this was like, wait, what? 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 (laughs) I need to go to Connecticut. I like this. (laughs) According to Private George B. Thayer, who wrote Company K's history, Jack had friends in most of the cities in New England, although his associations with the traveling public at the West End Hotel in Portland. Frequently, he visited in homes, taking in, taking passage in steamers and boarding some train and returning to Portland in due time. In his travels, Thayer claims, Jack Brooded visited Boston, New Brunswick, New York, and many other cities on steamer lines. And I should note that Jack is a mastiff. Okay, <laughs> okay that's so much better than what I was imagining. <laughs> yes. I love mastiffs. And... I will share photos of Jack, old Jack, because he, there are photos from the Civil War of this, of this best dog in like, it's black and white, but you see him with a hooded cape. Okay. And it is just incredible. So Company K met old Jack while stationed at Fort Preble in Portland, Maine in May of 1898. Jack quickly became a favorite to the soldiers and eventually became the official mascot. He went and traveled with the unit as they encamped up and down the eastern seaboard, providing coastal defense during the Spanish-American War. (laughs) Jack was a large breed dog and often had health issues throughout his service with Company K. During a heat mm-hmm. spell at Camp Alger near the Falls Church, Virginia, Jack had trouble breathing and suffered in the heat. Thayer noted, oh. quote, Poor Jack, that noble mastiff we brought in from Portland was suffering with extreme heat, and it is doubtful if he survives. Fearing for oh. Jack's life, the men took to nursing him, and he eventually recovered. Mm. This is my best part. Jack also had a snoring problem. (laughs) Well, yeah, because he's a mastiff. Yeah. (laughs) The men on night duty to allow the men to sleep in their tents and to remain that way often enticed Jack far away from camp so that his snoring did not disturb the sleeping soldiers. 
when <laughs> the loudest snorer elections took place, Jack came in second. Um, I need to know who came in first. I bet that person's deeply embarrassed that you lost to the dog or that you <laughs> you beat the dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because who else needs to be enticed out of the camp? <laughs> so they're, why could... they're out there like on opposite sides a mile away. <laughs> yeah. Just convincing, you know, like that there's just bears out. Like, Jack, I need you to sit and be a good boy. Um, Private Crawford, I'm gonna need you to just stay here and work the night shift, okay? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Wagoneer Edward Ahern mustered out of the army in late 1898, and when he did, he took Jack Brutus home with him. Old Jack died from spinal troubles and constipation while under a physician's care on November 20th, 1898, but will always be remembered as a loyal Connecticut war dog. I love that you had to tell me constipation was part of it. It was you know, like, unlike you, I'm going to do my homework. I even went to find a grave to see if I could find the gravestone of Jack Brutus. Hey, Spoiler alert, I, I couldn't. I gave you an inflation count for Libras. That's That's fair. Thank you. <laughs> All right, I will see if I can share my screen to show you a picture of Jack. I cannot wait is, to see him. He's a good boy. Oh, oh, Teresa has started screen. Oh my gosh, I love him. Yes. Isn't he amazing? <laughs> he looks so, he's got a little, oh my God. What does like, he have? I think that that's, that's a rifle. It's a rifle. Yeah, it is. They positioned him with the rifle under his cloak. Oh my gosh. I love him. I want to pet him. And yes, he definitely has snoring problems. Yes, he is the best boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is the story of the two dogs in the army before that was a thing. I'm going to have to ask our very dear friend who was a kennel master for the Air Force if he knows about either of them. Dollars to donuts, he doesn't. Well, he might have heard of Stubby, but I mean, I bet he didn't know about Jack Brutus. Jack Brutus is so cute. I can't even. I've already Googled him <laughs> so that I could so that I could look at more like hoping to find more pictures. There's one. I didn't put it in my <laughs> notes. Yeah. Of that one where he's in the under the tent, just laying down with all the other he's soldiers. So it's big. more of a lifestyle shot from the Civil War, which is not something I thought I would ever look for or long for. OK, so he served this the Spanish-American War. Is that? That's yeah, it was Spanish American. I lied earlier and said civil because that's the kind of facts you can get from me. He is so freaking cute. I know. I won't burn my face in his face. I bet you he slobbered so much. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I'm, totally, I'm totally picturing, like, you know how Stubby kept the guy by the seat of his pants? Yep. All Jack has to do is like just put his paw on you and like open. His I bet mouth he had paws the size of dinner plates. Oh, they had to be. I mean, when you look at that picture, he's massive. Yeah, well, he's bigger than my face for sure. Oh my yeah. gosh, I'm in love. Mm-hmm. He's so cute. He's so serious. <laughs> I well, I mean, when you have a gun strapped to your side that is not the time to be smiling and goofing off angie you gotta have your war face on what if and hear me out your war face is smiling and goofing off because it is just what it is and it also freaks the other side out a little bit that you're grinning while i don't doubt it does seem like an easy target <laughs> okay I mean he's so cute I cannot remember how cute he is 
definitely not a vampire stuck in a box traveling across the U.S. No, no, no. He is getting the goodest pets and all the snacks. How much what do you if think he ate a day? Three small humans. What if you? <laughs> what if he was a vampire, but nobody suspected him because of he's the goodest boy? Listen, I'd be his friend. I would. I would. Yeah. Come sit next to me. Yeah, you're gonna lick my face. Ah, my neck. Oh no. And the dogs broke in right at that moment. (laughs) I let the puppy stay. That's that's inviting terror, but she was the easiest one. And she's we're you're talking about dogs. She just wants to know what's up. She's a little bit jealous. We've never called her the goodest boy because she's not the goodest. (laughs) She's not the goodest. But she is awfully cute that's she is awfully cute she's also a terror the cute ones usually are yeah jack our youngest cat who is like um at some point he swallowed a softball and that's like this that's how his stomach operates you know like he's just fluff he is the most um problematic yeah he we don't need an alarm because he wakes me up every morning at 6 a.m on the dot it's breakfast time. Madam, it's breakfast time. You put this large gate up so I couldn't come down the hallway and wake you up. I will sing the song of my people louder. Listen, Miss Angie, I would like my food contract renewed. <laughs> In fact, um, I don't know if you know, but uh, I'm wasting away. And allow me to enter negotiations with my <laughs> loudest plea. <laughs> Indeed. While the other cat is sitting in the hallway because he can jump the gate, but he doesn't meow very loud. His meows are very quiet. So he just sits at the door and waits patiently. He doesn't need to yell. Somebody else is doing his campaign. The work for him. Oh, right. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, jerks. Good thing they're cute. <laughs> well, on that note, as I'm... A- watching chaos unfold and i have to keep turning my head to see if the walls being chewed through um (laughs) i would i would say it would make sense for us to wrap this up because who knows what fresh hell is going to (laughs) approach i love it yes let's let's do that i promise um, you my next story will have a police report attached if it needs to be please and thank you you know just just a just the modicum of of effort. Just the disrespect I put on you today. I mean <laughs> you you will be covering therapy bills and any fees associated with this FOIA request. Just FYI. Expect it your involves Venmo. A... <laughs> New phone, who does? Yeah, pretty much. I can, <laughs> I'm imagining. Um, if you have enjoyed our shenanigans and wish to hear me push harder for sources, please continue. You can rate, review, and subscribe. Share this with all the peeps who you feel need to have and share it with people who don't. If you are dr- the driver in a 15-hour car ride, you pick this up, hit play again, and tell them, don't touch that station. Don't touch that station. It's mine. Smack hands exactly own it and if you if we've messed something up like i said that old jack brutus was a part of the civil war and didn't correct myself later on and you have the facts and got the receipts if you have angie's missing police report you can send it to us (laughs) at unhinged.historypod at gmail.com i love it and until then join us next week Bye. <laughs>